Good morning. We're going to uh, jump back into Ezra and Nehemiah again. If you remember from last week in the introduction, I told you that um, this is Ezra and Nehemiah is actually one book. Um, we've split it into two, um, like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. What used to be Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, we have it divided in two, but it's actually one, uh, telling this one story of the people after exile. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament um, in the Hebrew order of the canon. The last book in the Old Testament in the Hebrew order of the canon is Chronicles, um, which is fascinating for a variety of reasons. So um, this morning we'll look at, uh, begin to look at Ezra Nehemiah as one book, um, and we'll, we'll really look at that book in four parts, um, but I'm going to look at the first part today. So I'm going to remind you by way of what we've covered a little bit so far last week, um, not the whole of redemptive history, which I always do when, I, when we restart the series, because that's, I'm, if I do that again today, we're not going to make any progress at all. But just a reminder of Ezra Nehemiah, its main themes, what we're coming at as we jump in this morning. So let me, let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the fact that your mercies are new every morning. We recognize that you are good, that you are just, you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. We know that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge and we, we give thanks that we, we see your handiwork, your wisdom and goodness and power in the things that you've made in the way that you govern them. We're thankful that you have also chosen to speak to us through special revelation, through the scriptures, to make yourself known in regard to how we might be in covenant with you, how we might walk with you and, and honor you, and, and ultimately in the face of our own sin, how we might be saved by you through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that we would be Delighted to hear your word, that your spirit would illumine your word. Help us um, grow in our understanding of who you are. Above all, we want to know Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel free to come in and grab a seat. Morning, Cole. Um, I, I want to remind you, just I'll back up just one step. Um, last week, to the general outline of Ezra and Nehemiah and um, drive at um, a couple of things this morning. Um, first, let me pick up the themes. Does anybody remember what the themes, the basic themes of Ezra and Nehemiah are? Well, let me actually back up one more step than that. Anybody remember the, the, the time period in which Ezra and Nehemiah is happening? As far as, I don't mean the exact years, I mean what's happening in the life of Israel at, that's being recounted in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's post-exile, good. 
So if you remember Israel, because of her wickedness, because of her violation of the Mosaic covenant, remember God had warned them. Um, he makes a covenant with, um, with his people in Abraham. And he says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be God to you and to your children after you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. Uh, this is the kind of God I'm going to be. Um, and then marks them out with circumcision um, as I'm your God, you're my people, here's the sign and uh, seal of that. And then they go through, um, from there, they, they go through life, you know, the, the family grows. Some of the kids walk with the Lord, some of the kids don't, and you get to Exodus. By the time you get to Exodus, this, this, this family's grown into a nation. Um, they've multiplied. They're in, under slavery under Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt, takes them to Mount Sinai, and makes another covenant with them. Now, this covenant isn't getting rid of the prior covenant. He's saying, because you're in this covenant with me, um, if you will, because I'm your God um, and you're my people, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And this covenant we call the Mosaic Covenant, which is national. In other words, it establishes what they're like as a nation. Their civil laws. Um, it establishes the cultists. When I say the cultists, I don't mean it makes them a cult. The cultists meaning their worship, the way they're to worship. So um, their priesthood and um, their priestly vestments and their sacrificial system and the tabernacle in which they worship. You guys remember all of that, right? Um, and how they approach um, God's place, which God also establishes a tabernacle where he will dwell with them and, and here's how you come to that tabernacle. And so he also gives them or a restatement of, uh, if you will, or a republication of uh, letting you know again about the covenant of works. In other words, um, Here's my law, and if you want to um, live by way of the law, you have to keep it all without, without exception. Um, to which they know, uh-oh, that's not doable. We're damned. Thus, the sacrificial system. Here's the solution to your problem. You need atonement for your sin. So he gives them, um, if you will, the moral law, the civil laws, and and the ceremonial laws. So they get those. He warns them, though, in the Mosaic Covenant. He says, I'm going to take you to this land. It's a national, temporary, typological covenant. In other words, that covenant, Moses, will eventually be replaced uh, because they won't be able to keep it. They'll keep breaking it. Um, and the heir will come who replaces that covenant. The Messiah will finally come. So he gives it to them, and he gives them these warnings. Listen, first is the sort of, if you will, I might say the positive side. If you keep my covenant, I'm going to bless you in all these ways. Right? If you, then he gives them the warnings. If you break it, I'm going to curse you in these ways. And he actually then predicts they will break it. They will be cursed. And then he says, and exiled from the land. That's the big curse. You'll be exiled from the land. Um, and then he says, but I'll make another covenant with you. A new covenant with you. By the way, that's all, all the way in Deuteronomy 30. By the time you're to Deuteronomy 30, you actually have like the whole of redemptive history laid out before you. I would argue you have it all laid out before you in Genesis, um, but you get it expanded throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. So Israel goes into the land. They get their judges. It's a mess, as you know. Then they get their kings, also a mess with a couple of highlights. Um, and then after years and years of unbelief and disobedience, they're exiled under Babylon. And while exiled under Babylon, they're wondering how long. How long is this going to last? 
Um, Daniel's given a prophecy of 77s, um, which pushes us beyond their actual return to the land. Um, so I'm, I'm pushing on that just because I want you to understand that though in Ezra and Nehemiah, Cyrus makes the decree that they can return to the land, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, etc., um, it doesn't solve the problem of exile in the way that we would hope it would. It doesn't solve it. So I want you to keep that in mind. They are, the exile has ended in one sense, and the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah are you're going back to the land to rebuild God's house where he dwells with you. So you're going to rebuild the house where God dwells with you. You're going to rebuild the city of God, you know, the earthly typological city of God, the, the picture of the, 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 the city of God, the new heavens and the new earth, if you guys will. Okay? You're going to build that city, you're going to rebuild that city, you're going to rebuild the temple, and you're going to, if you will, rebuild the people. They need to be the right kind of people, right? And so those are the three themes. The temple, or the house, the city, that's what we mean when I say the walls of the city. The house of God or temple, the city or the walls of the city, and the people. Those three things, themes are being picked up. You might go, why those themes? Because um, you need to have a visible, marked out people of God in the place that they live, the city. You need to have a people of God who walk under God's rule and blessing, right? In, an internally changed sort of people. And, and you need to have God dwelling with those people and the temple. Do you see how those things mark those off? Okay? Um, and so that's what they're looking forward to in the exile. I want you to understand, though, I mean, the return from the exile. I want you to understand, though, when they return from the exile, um, in Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to find that they, don't, they never quite come out of exile. Um, that's part of the reason when we get to Chronicles, I'm going to press on the fact that Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew canon, which is fascinating because Chronicles ends with them still in exile. Ezra and Nehemiah comes before they leave, but Chronicles ends with them still in exile. Um, and, and the reason it does is it's, and then it's just the Bible goes silent, if you will, for 400 years until the Christ comes. And there's a reason for that, because even though they've gotten out from underneath Babylon, if you will, they still really haven't come out of exile in the ultimate sense. There's only one who can lead them out, um, and they're waiting for him. So we're, um, we're left there, but let's, let me remind you the four parts. The return of exile, the exiles and the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra 1 through 6. That's what we're going to look at this morning is that major point. The return of exiles and rebuilding of the temple. Ezra 7 through 10, the return of Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple. Okay, We'll look at that um, next week. The return of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the city walls in Nehemiah 1, 7 through 3 and the return of more exiles and rebuilding the people of God in Ezra 7, 4 through 13, 31. That's a, that's a rough outline of Ezra and Nehemiah as a book. Um, <clears throat> here's what it's not about. Church building campaigns. Okay, that's, it's not about that. Um, if these books are about church building campaigns, the principles we learn from them are no matter how nice the building is that you erect, you're a wicked people um, you know, <laughs> who needs saving. So we don't, probably don't want to 
go there. All right. Um, <clears throat> return of exiles and rebuilding of the temple. Let's, let's break that down. So I'm just going to go over that in, in basically five points that you can see there. Return from exile and a new exodus. Return from exile and a new people. Return from exile and a new temple. Return from exile and opposition from the seed of the serpent. Return from exile and the sovereign God. Now, I break it down that way. I pick up the seed of the serpent. Because remember, all through the Bible, all through the Bible, we have um, this battle from Genesis 3.15 forward between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we see that opposition. Cain and Abel. Cain, seed of the serpent. Abel, seed of the woman. Right? Seth and his godly line seed of the woman. The wicked world, the daughters of men, seed of the serpent. Okay? Um, Noah, minimally, seed of the woman. The whole world around him, seed of the serpent. Okay? You, and you just keep on going. Israel and the enemy nations, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. You can see how that works out. Okay? You keep having that contest all the way through. Um, all right, so the return of, from exile and a new exodus. Let's go there. Ezra 1. I want you to notice this new exodus because um, it's important language, and we can stop and discuss that for a moment. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, before I read that proclamation, I want to ask you, what does he mean that the word of the... Um, the word of, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the prophet might be fulfilled. What's he referring to there? Anybody remember? Well, okay. So it, you, it's been a while since we've been in Jeremiah or at 6.15 in the morning. I'm not sure which one. But um, remember, Jeremiah had prophesied it would be about 70 years. It would come at, the decree, at this kind of a decree that's where Daniel's getting his information from, even when he's reflecting on that, if you remember. Um, so there's a fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, now, Jeremiah says, you know, um, it's going to be 70 years, and he's using that language a particular way. It's not been, as far as we know, 70 years, maybe 54 years or so, depending on which scholar you believe about the actual dating of events. But... Um, Almost, I don't, I don't know of any that can mark out an exact 70 without playing some real games with history because that's not the point of the 70 years. Um, and, and if you don't understand that, then go back and listen to what we did with Daniel. That'll help you understand that a bit. <clears throat> it's eschatological language, so it's prophetic. Um, all right. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Um, I just want to comment on this as we go through. Notice in um, Return from Exile and the Sovereign God, Ezra 5 and 6, you're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah God turning the hearts of the kings whichever way he wants. You're going to see it. That's going to be an emphasis through these two books or through this one book that we've broken into. two. Now look what he goes on to say. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, 
He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go, stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. All right, so now I want to pick up some themes here that I think are maybe are, that are important to note that are patterns we see throughout. So um, there you go. One pattern is, um, is noticing um, <coughs> that, uh, if you will, God's um, sovereignty over kings, right, and all those in authority. You're going to see that again and again throughout the Bible. He, he shows Pharaoh who the real king is. If you remember um, in Genesis, when Abraham goes into various places or when um, um, Jacob or Isaac go into various places, um, if you remember these scenes, God moves those kings to do things. You guys remember that? The hearts of those kings? You just see that again and again. In other words, um, all throughout the Bible, sort of the veil's removed that God is, God is behind everything that's happening in this way. He, he is sovereign over these kings. That's why it's so foolish when they plot together to try to overthrow him. It's like, you're fools. He, he has control of your heart. He turns it wherever he wills, right? So you see this theme come up. God speaks to Cyrus, king of Persia, and says, you're going to do my will, <laughs> right? And, and so you see it play out. Another theme you see play out throughout Scripture, and this is a major theme among Israel, by the way. It's a major theme throughout the Bible. Another theme that you see play out um, is there, if you notice, in, um, in, well, let me just ask you. Maybe, maybe you picked it up. Well, I'll pick up an easier one. Who are the tribes... Who, who's the emphasis on the tribes that come out? Where's, where's the emphasis on the people? What sort of people are being emphasized as returning from exile? Look at verse 5. Well, the people God stirred up, that's right. Okay, so the southern kingdom, that's, that's not unimportant. Okay, um, so Judah and Benjamin. So I, I appreciate you picking that up. Jacob, because folks might not notice that. The southern kingdom, okay? So I'm just going to put um, the southern kingdom of Judah is stirred up. Specifically, um, Judah is the kingdom from whom, who, who what comes? 
Who, who comes from Judah? Huh? Kings. Okay, so there's an emphasis on kings. And what's the other emphasis? You see it there. Priests and the Levites. Okay. Um, I picked those up because um, there's a real emphasis on coming out of exile is, is let out of the, uh, the southern kingdom, and, and it's done so by priests, by kings and priests. Um, that's going to be a, a continual emphasis. It's not incidental. Um, we're, we're, we're looking for the priest king, aren't we? We're looking for him, and it's not just an incidental fact that that's there. Now, southern kingdom. Jacob picked that up. Why does that matter? Yeah, they have Jerusalem. Um, they're the ones from whom the king will come. And, and they're the ones who are... Um, yeah, they hold the Davidic promise. And they're far more faithful than the northern kingdom of Israel. If you guys remember, the northern kingdom of Israel is carried off into captivity 100 years before the southern kingdom because of their wickedness. And, and um, without ha- taking too much time in Isaiah, one of the things that Isaiah is getting at is when the new covenant comes, when this new day comes, there's going to be a reunification of the northern and southern kingdom. They're going to be brought back together again. Right? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms. That's why when you get to the book of Acts, you hear this language. The Holy Spirit will come on you with power, that's from, by the way, Isaiah 32, 15. The Holy Spirit will come on you with power, um, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, southern kingdom, and Samaria, northern kingdom, and the ends of the earth, Gentiles. You following? Um, there's a reunification of the northern and southern kingdoms and the Gentile nations. Um, and so that theme is already being picked up. So I appreciate you noticing that. Um, now, what's the biggest theme that seems the most obvious that I hope you all noticed? The Exodus theme. Where do you see that? Okay, so they, they, the plundering is one great one. Let me give you um, a, a few of them. Notice, look at verse 3. Whoever is among you of all his people... May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. Okay, so now you're going to go up to Jerusalem. Why up to Jerusalem? Jerusalem's on a mountain, mountain, okay? So here is a king akin to Pharaoh saying, go with God to your mountain. Okay, You you guys have heard that kind of thing before, right? Go, right? Um, with God, go with them to your mountain, and you're going to do what? Go there and do what? Rebuild Rebuild the house of God, the temple of God, where he dwells, and you do what there? Worship. You guys remember that language in Exodus? We're going to go out, and we're going to worship God, right? They're going to go to a mountain, and they're going to worship God. Um, The other thing is, they, Jacob picked up on, they plundered the Egyptians on the way out. In other words, the Lord said, the Egyptians are going to give you all kinds of stuff to go with you to do this, and here you see that happen again. 
By the way, none of that is even new to the Exodus. So you might be surprised as we go through Genesis when you see Abraham, for example, go down into Egypt and while down in Egypt um, be underneath the Pharaoh at the time and then Abraham be told by him because God comes to him and says, you better, I'm going to strike you down essentially. And the Pharaoh says, look, go, go out, go up to your place. Here's a bunch of gold and jewels and all kinds of stuff. Right? And you have an exodus. Again, camels, etc. It starts out all the way back there because that type of the exodus runs through scripture. So I'll give you the example. Where do Adam and Eve originally live? Eden. Eden on the mountain of God. On the mountain of God. And they dwell with him there in his house. Right? And what happens when they sin? God expels them. And they're exiled down the mountain. They go down from Eden. And they start to go east of Eden, further away from God's presence. They can't get back up there. Right? They want to return from exile. They need an exodus. They go down into death. Now you go, oh, this seems like Isaiah sees this exodus pattern throughout Scripture. Probably, um, I don't mean more clearly than the other prophets that they didn't notice it, but, but I mean, by way, of, um, by way of the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah lays out the exodus pattern and a coming new exodus, probably more clearly than anybody else. And he says, there's a coming new exodus. It's coming. He lays it out throughout his book. And when you get to Jesus and the apostles, they start to pick up those Exodus themes. And they start to say, Jesus is leading the new Exodus. But he's leading a better Exodus. He's leaving an Exodus out of the grave. So, um, so that when Jesus is on his way to the cross, he says that now's the time for my, in Luke, now is the time for my, in Greek, Exodon for my exodus. I'm going to go to the cross and die, and I'm going to raise from the dead. Right? And then I'm going to ascend the holy mountain to the presence of God, and I'm going to carry you with me. You, you understand how this is laid out through Scripture. You can't miss the exodus theme. It's probably the, mo the largest overarching theme that you see throughout Scripture. Um, Luke and Acts is just built around a new exodus but we don't tend to pay that much attention to it. It's built around that. All right, um, so we have um, the Exodus theme is that fourth one that comes out of here. You have essentially um, everything you need, if you will, for a new Exodus. For a new Exodus. Um, all right, so chapter one, there's a return from exile as a kind of new Exodus. Let's look at chapter two. A return from exile and a new people. Now there's an emphasis on this new people. Um, I'm not gonna read this whole genealogy, but I'll point out where it is. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried to Babylon, captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. There came with they came with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, 
Sariah, and on and on. Now notice the number of the, of the men of the people of Israel, they list them. Verse 36, the priests, they list them. Verse 40, the Levites, they list them. Verse 43, the temple servants, they list them. No, there, notice there's a lot of emphasis on the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. Um, verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants, etc., etc. Look down at verse 64. Um, um, the whole assembly together... By the way, I, I should probably bring this up. There were some people who seek registration who shouldn't, and so, or, or there's a question about whether they should, and, and they deal with that, but it's, it, we're getting into some details I don't have time for right now. But verse 64, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, to whom they were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. It's interesting they just have a group of singers, isn't it? Um, so it's for temple worship. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. So you have this emphasis on the, the, the numbering, if you will, of the people, which you've seen that before, haven't you? The numbering of the people. Um, we have a whole book called Numbers that, you know, is following the Exodus. And there's a numbering of the people. And there's a real emphasis here on um, the priests and the Levites. And there's also an emphasis here on the fact that the head of the households is doing what he's supposed to do. Right? What's the head of the household to do? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he's supposed to lead the family that way. And they're actually doing it. They're actually doing it, um, which is um, quite remarkable it, given Israel's history up to this point <laughs> in various periods. Um, but, but this is a really um, largely good picture of, of some real revival, if you will, that's happening among God's people um, coming out of the exile. And so there's, there's some rejoicing to be had there. Now, a return from exile in a new temple. So there are they, they, there's a new exodus with a new people, and there's a new temple or building of the house of God. So look at verse, uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now notice the unity of the people there. Right? Um, that sort of picks up on a promise. Let me show you a new covenant promise just because... Um, I want you to see it, but it's not totally fulfilled here, but you're getting hints at the fact that in some way this is looking like it's in good shape. Keep your hand there and look over at Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, when he promises the new covenant in 31 and 32, as he's bringing them out of exile, look at verse 36. Now therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, 
It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. In other words, Jerusalem. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. In other words, the exile. I will bring them back to this place and I'll make them dwell in safety. And that sounds like what's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah, doesn't it? Okay. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. The central promise of every covenant to the Bible doesn't change. Doesn't change. I will give them one heart and one way. Now that sounds like what's happening when they all gather as one man, doesn't it? They, you know what it means to have one heart and one way? It, 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 it's it's you're, you're unified, you're together. The Spirit has done a work that causes a kind of unity among you that you have the same purpose. Um, there's a love for one another and a, and, a, and a purpose together. One heart and one way. So when they gather as one man, it's like, you, you feel like you're picking up all the hints of this, of, 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 of this new covenant happening. Now, it doesn't um, happen here like they might think it's going to. They get a taste of it, but they don't really get it. Um, this phrase, one heart in one way, and he goes on to say, um, if you look there, um, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. This doesn't actually start to get fulfilled until you get to Acts. And if you remember the scene in Acts, after the Spirit's poured out, the people are together, and they start sharing all the stuff with those who have need. Um, it actually quotes Jeremiah 32 here and says they, they were of one heart and one way. In other words, the new covenant has begun. And, and, it's, and it also says in Acts that they were, the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. You're picking up all these pieces that Christ and Pentecost, if you will, are the beginning of this new exodus in the fullest sense, right? Okay, in the new covenant. Now, let's look on. Look on. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Remember, they're supposed to build an altar and offer sacrifices. Now, again, let me give you another kind of exodus, another going down and coming back up, a going down into death and coming back up by way of resurrection. Um, I will point to Noah on the ark. They go down into the flood waters of God's judgment in a giant coffin. Um, that's the shape of it, and that's the actual... Egyptian loan word they're using, ark. It's the same word, if you remember from my sermon on Sunday, as the basket that Moses has put in in the, red, I mean in the, um, in the Nile River. Um, he's put in that. All the children are being drowned there, but Moses has put in an ark or um, a coffin to go in there, same as, the, as Noah's ark, same word, only used twice in the Old Testament. And he goes into the floodwaters of God's judgment and he comes out of the floodwaters of God's judgment when the waters separate, and you have a, a resurrection, if you will. And so Peter compares that to the resurrection, actually. Um, in 1 Peter 3, um, 18 and following, he compares it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I'm getting at here, though, is um, in this Exodus, if you notice where he says that they, they come up out of exile into the land, and what's the first thing they do? What's the first thing they build? An altar to do what? 
offer sacrifices and worship. What's the first thing Noah does when he comes out of the ark? Builds an altar and makes sacrifices, atoning sacrifices. This is the pattern, folks, all the way through Scripture. Um, The Christian religion from beginning to end is the same. It's administered differently, typically in in types and shadows, until the fulfillment comes, the the anti-type, the one to whom it all points. Um, But it's not a new religion. Like, you know, Ian often says, Ian Hamilton often says, he wants to just rip the page out between the Old and New Testament and say, stop reading the Bible like there's two gods and two peoples and two programs and understand this is, it's just scripture. Here's the ongoing story from beginning to end. Um, You've got to read the New Testament like the people to whom it was delivered would have read it as a fulfillment of what's been happening in the Old Testament. Right? All right, so now notice they go on. And the emphasis on, by the way, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, that's important. Um, I don't want to miss that. Why is that important? What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to obey the law. That's also giving you little hints. Every time it says, as it is written, or as it is written, the law of Moses, the man of God, it's giving you little hints that, is the new covenant come? Because remember, they were breaking that covenant, and now I'm going to take, it was on tablets of stone, and now I'm going to write it on your heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 25 and following, right? And so are they finally getting it? Is it finally internalized in the way it ought to be for the people, right? Um, It's sounding that way, but it doesn't turn out to be like you want it to. So, but it's moving that direction. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Um, just as a reminder, they always did offerings morning and evening. It, it, that, the pattern of worship for God's people is always a morning and evening pattern. First thing when you wake up, you worship. Last thing you do before you go to bed, you worship. Um, that's the pattern of worship for God's people. That's why historically the church did morning and evening worship on the Lord's Day, because you start and end the Lord's Day with worship. It isn't the Lord's morning or the Lord's hour and a half or something like that. It's the Lord's day. Um, That is the pattern throughout Scripture that the people lived by because God commanded it. You're marking off the day on both sides with worship. Um, And I would tell you that's how you ought to live your general life. In other words, you wake up in the morning, you worship. Before you go to bed at night, you worship. And you probably should lead your family in that. Heads of households should lead your family in that. It doesn't take a lot of time Read something out of the Bible and pray. Read a psalm and pray. <laughs> Do something with your, with your folks as the head of the household. All right, we'll go on. And they kept the Feast of Booths, so they're keeping the feasts. Notice, as it is written, and offer the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that regular burnt offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the offering of the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord. Are you guys noticing the the appointed feasts? As it is written, 
as according to the rule. You guys noticing the language there, right? Um, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Ty um, Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to, to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. Now, by the way, the Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, is a... He's in the line of what? The, the kings, thus the Messiah, the kings. And Josadak, or Joshua, the son of Josadak, is in the line of the priests. You know it because it's the other option, right? You say, well, the prophets too, but it doesn't mention the prophet. Okay, so good. The priests, um, they're being led by the kings and the priests in doing this. Together the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who'd come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua, with his, that 20 years old and upward, is pointing you back to the second generation of Israel. Remember, coming out of the Exodus, going into the land. To supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen and the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Now David had commands them to worship with these instruments, uh, you'll see that, for example, in the Psalms or other places. Um, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. What are they singing about? We just have to stop there for a minute. They rebuild the, they're rebuilding the house of God. The foundation's laid. It's not done. What are they singing about? God. God. That's so important. They're not... Look at our good work. Look at what we've done. They're not even talking about, um, they're not even singing a, a song of thanksgiving. They're, they're not even, they're not singing about their, they're not confessing their sin. They're not repenting. Those things are clearly happening, but that's not the emphasis. They're not even thanking God for things he's doing here. They're, they're adoring him. It's, it's adoration. And they're, they're saying, He's good. Now, here's something toward them. Here's the goodness toward them. His steadfast love endures forever. Hesed. That chesed. If I can get all the gutturals in there. I'm not very good at the Hebrew gutturals, but once you learn, your tongue doesn't, you know, do well. The older you get, it just gets more and more cemented in your ability to come up with language. But um, his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, he keeps his covenant. His original covenant promise. He's not failing to keep. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, but notice this. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. 
so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Why are they weeping? What's happening there? The people who remember the first house are weeping. Why? I think it's a lot less glorious, and it's a big reminder of what they brought about with their sin. The house they destroyed, right, with their wickedness. Um, it's, it's, you can imagine what this is like. It's a little bit like, hey, you built up great wealth in your business. You built yourself a really nice place to live, and then you were a fool. You blew it all. The thing was gone that you had built, and then you're like, well, my wife and I are going to build a new house, and now you go from this really great place to a little tiny house you build for yourselves. You're rejoicing that you finally have your own house again, and you're remembering, um, because of that new little house, look at what I screwed up, right? Um, and this is essentially what the people are doing. Look what our sin has brought, right? Praise the Lord, his house is coming, his presence will be here again, but oh my, the diminution of the glory of the previous house because of our sin, right? Um, and so we have this scene. So we have a new exodus, a new people, and a new temple. Let's look at um, their opposition from the seed of the serpent. Okay, so, so far things are going swimmingly. The exile is looking pretty good. But you know, whenever God's people enter God's place under God's rule and blessing, like Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan comes slithering in every time, right? And here he comes again. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of, the, of father's houses and said to them, now notice the first offer, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as, as King Cyrus of, per of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Um, now I'm going to go on to this for a second. So the people of the land who are there, they're in the land, these peoples. They're not the covenant people of God. They don't trust the God of Israel really. And they come in as opposition and they offer to do what? Let us help you build it. Right? Let us help you build it. Yeah, yeah, build back better maybe. Yeah, let us help you build it. Okay, so what, 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 anyway, what, what, when they're going to help them build it, what is the, um, um, why, why is it that, that, that the leaders in Israel or in Judah reject the offer? Because they know they're snakes. Um, they, they don't want syncretism. This is, the say, this is the error, remember, the people make when they come into the land under 
under Joshua, they come into the land and they're like, the other nations come, let's be friends. Let's covenant together. All will go well. And what happens when they do that? Well, their sons see the good-looking daughters of these men, these pagans, they intermarry, and down they go into apostasy. Um, right? That's a big warning throughout Scripture about men do not marry the seed of the serpent. Right? Don't marry unbelieving, ungodly women. Right? Because they will bring you down a bad path. Um, you see that warning going all the way through. I think starting in Genesis 6, um, but you see it going all the way through um, Israel's history. Now here, essentially, what they're saying is, let's, let's be friends. In other words, they're, they're offering syncretism. Let's mix your faith and ours in some way. All will be well, right? And the people are doing exactly what they ought to do. They're repudiating any syncretism coming into the Jewish religion, right? Okay, any mixing of two faiths. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. So if you're not going to, you, you find out their true character here. Let us help you build it. We worship the same God that built it. No, now we're going to try to shake you down to keep you from building it, right? So they make them afraid to build and they bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the days of uh, the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabeel, and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Now, just, pay, just want to note this. Lots of years are passing here because you've gone from Cyrus to Darius to Ahasuerus to Artaxerxes. You guys following that? Okay. Um, no, it's not done. They've, 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 they've been on hold for some time now. This is why certain prophets will come in and be like, hey, you're busy building your own houses, but you've left the building of the house of God behind, right? You're super interested in your own wealth and prosperity, but you could care less about God's church. They've been incredibly effective. Yeah, incredibly effective. Now here comes the, the judgment um, or the statement. Rahum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the, province of, rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter um, that they sent. Now, the, Samar the Samarian, Samaritan area is in on this opposition. This Samaria is the northern kingdom, Keep that in mind of Israel, <laughs> right? They're in on the opposition. Um, and goes in, this is a copy of the letter they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. 
They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king. In other words, the, the king provides for us, so we don't want to dishonor you, right? In order, verse 15, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its wall is finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greetings. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that the city, this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum, Rahum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you see how the opposition comes. First, it comes by trying to deceive them. Hey, we're all in this together, right? Let's join up. Second, it comes when they refuse that by just um, gossip and undermining and these sorts of things. And then it finally comes by an appeal to power. Let's go to the king and shut it down, right? Um, this is the condition of man, incidentally, um, but it's certainly the way God's people have always been opposed through history. Um, you saw this in China, by the way. China made a pact with the church there called the Three Self Church. You can't have free Christianity in China, but you can have Christianity directed by the Chinese Communist Party. And a lot of the Chinese Christians said, okay, and then found out real quickly in that pact they didn't end up much, with much freedom in their worship. There was a lot of compromise in doctrine. Um, some of the Chinese church said no, and so they got um, despised, gossiped about, treated badly, and then eventually the power of government was brought against them and they went underground. They're still suffering under that. Um, this is the kind of thing the seed of the serpent always does. He certainly does it throughout the history of Israel. All right. Um, so they have a, an opposition and the rebuilding of the walls. Notice that both are caught up here in this history. The rebuilding of the walls of the city and the rebuilding of the, the temple are both, um, are both stopped. What, one of the things you also need to pay attention to is the seed of the serpent is always... Um, complaining that if we, if we rebuild, um, if you let the, these, these Jews get you know, too much of their own sort of territory and, and um, rebuild their temple and rebuild their people, they're going to be a threat to you. Right? They're going to be a threat. Pharaoh's 
concerned they're going to be a threat. You guys remember that? They had their own land in Goshen, and they multiplied, and the Pharaoh was concerned they were a threat, so he basically enslaved them. Um, you'll see that kind of thing go on throughout the history of Scripture. And, incidentally, the history of God's people after, um, after the end of the New Testament throughout the last couple thousand years. Um, you see the same kind of pattern continue. All right, from exile and the sovereign God, let's conclude by reading this, area, this section. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. Now I want you to pay attention to the prophecy. What were the people told by decree of the king? Stop. So they stopped. Now here come, here come God's prophets. Not going to tolerate that behavior. So in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak. Remember, there's the, now you have the prophets, the priest, and the kings, right, all together, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. It's a fascinating scene because the prophets, priests, and king come together in opposition to the seed of the serpent and rebuild God's house. At the same time, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of Jerusalem, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Sheth, Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows, follows to Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we're build, rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, that was in Jerusalem, and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished." Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives, therefore, in Babylon, there in Babylon, to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us 
his pleasure in this matter. In other words, um, essentially, we're God's servants. We're going to do what God wants. And by the way, um, you haven't read all the official records. Those shysters sent you to read one group of records, but they didn't tell you that you ought to read this other group of records. Go read those. You'll find out we're doing exactly what Cyrus the king commissioned us to do. So they do. Then Darius, chapter 6, verse 1, the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Bacatana, the citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, so, you know, roughly 90 feet, and its breadth 60 cubits. It's a cube, right? Don't forget that the house of God is a cube. That matters in Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is shaped like a cube. Um, that's where God dwells with his people. With three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple, that is in Jerusalem and brought, back, and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. So in other words, they've come complaining and they're told, leave them alone. And now it gets even better. Not only should you leave them alone, these, you know, here comes the seed of the serpent trying to oppress, right? Not only should you leave them alone, but look at this. Moreover, I make a decree, verse 8, regarding what you shall do for these elders of Jerusalem and the re for the rebuilding of the house, this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. I bet they did. <laughs> and, and, the, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. Remember, they're prophesying through the hearing of the word of God. Excuse me, they are prophesying. They are prospering through the hearing of the word of God. That's what prospers them. 
They finished their building by, the, by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. Remember I told you about the Exodus themes? You know, they're supposed to keep the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's that Passover week, seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so they aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And thus ends that section um, of Ezra and Nehemiah, that first section, the return of the exiles and rebuilding the temple. And you see, as I said, the sovereignty of God working graciously. And I, if, I, if I would, we're going to alter that a little bit. Um, the sovereignly kind or good God, right? The sovereign goodness or loving kindness. His commitment to his covenant promises to his people. Um, you see played out there. All right. Any questions? Um, no, they ate the Passover there. The priests would eat particular ones, um, but the people don't eat the majority of them. They'll, they will eat the Passover lamb. Yeah, certain family members eat certain sacrifices, but certain ones are reserved for the priests and certain ones are burned up wholly. It's practical. The, the main way that the Levites and the priests are provided for is through the sacrificial system. That's the main way they eat. Because remember, they don't, they're the tribe that doesn't get any land and because they're provided for through that system. Um, in that sense, they're kind of like prototypical. Like they're, they're, well, prototypical, they're like, like uh, prototypical pastors, if you will, right? They're, they're the men who oversee the house of God in a particular way, and they're provided for by the house of God. They don't, they're not generally provided for by, if you will, their own secular employment. You see that pattern happening in a much more intense way here, obviously. I don't want you to drop off any sheep at my house, just to be clear. So, <laughs> you do, you do, you do. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. All right. So, um, yeah. Yes, sir. So you mentioned the themes of kings and priests being brought back. Yeah. And you also mentioned the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah. Why is that? Because they're part of the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom of Judah um, would include the tribe of Benjamin. 
Yeah. And that's significant because you need, because it's the, the emphasis is the southern kingdom um, is being restored in some way, but not the northern kingdom. And that's tipping you off to the fact that this can't be what Isaiah was prophesying or what Jeremiah and Ezekiel were prophesying, particularly because Isaiah really spends all the time on the restoration of the northern kingdom, not just the southern kingdom. And so this can't be it because they haven't been reunified. In fact, if you notice in Ezra, the northern kingdom, i.e. what we now call, what we start calling Samaria, is opposing the southern kingdom, the rebuilding. So, yeah. Any others? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, they're sacrificing for all 12 tribes. Yep, as is the command. So there must be, um, there's, there's a sense in which they're, they're offering atoning sacrifice for all of them um, because they're one people, right? They're one people, so they're going to do that offering for all of them as they're commanded. It's, it's odd for us because we think so individualistically. Um, we don't think in households or tribes like that, which is a, which is a, which is a problem for us, actually. Because um, for us, it's like, I didn't make a decision for this. You know, like everybody, that's, a, that's the American way. I did, when, when, when did I get a vote, right? You want to ask Joshua's household, we will serve the Lord. His household's going, what? What? <laughs> when did we vote on that? So anyway, um, but that, that's not even something they thought about in their time. All right. Anything else? Okay, so we'll pick up what I say, chapter 7 through the end of Ezra next week. Um, I would encourage you to begin reading in Nehemiah as well um, because they really do come together as one book. So I don't know that we'll spill into Nehemiah next week, but we'll at least minimally um, be ready for it in case we do. Um, So... All right, so let me pray, and if some of us are going to breakfast, um, we'll, we'll see you there at Old River Grill, Brimhall, and Callaway. So let me pray. Father, we're thankful for um, just the continual truth that we see in your word, um, that you, you are God, and that you are redeeming your people You are keeping your covenants, um, namely the covenant that spans across Scripture to save us in Christ, the seed of the woman. We're thankful we see that consistently revealed um, both in the Old Testament and New. Um, We pray that we would um, resist syncretism ourselves, um, that we would remain faithful to rejoicing in you for all your good gifts and just for who you are, um, that we would continue to walk in faith and honor the Lord, and that we would um, lead our own households well in that. Um, And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.